Now, here's a pet peeve, the way that Episcopal clergy are addressed. Now, you may say, this is very minor um, material to be doing a podcast on the way in which Episcopal clergy are addressed, or the titles uh, by which they are referred. You may say, that is a very small and tertiary matter of meaning for me or you, but in fact, it's very important and and very interesting and very revealing, because the point of this podcast, which is entitled Mr. Priest, is going to be that the more defensive and embattled a way of thinking or school of thought or a once vibrant movement becomes, the more configured, artificial, and inflated titles become, and the more insisted upon are minor, minor league prerogatives, and the more underlined and observed are secondary distinctions. Now, the reason I'm talking about Mr. Priest or clergy nomenclature is because in my own thinking of late, I've had George Eliot in mind, and George Eliot, known as Marianne Evans, wrote great novels, the first of which is called Scenes of Clerical Life. And if you are used to uh, any kind of connection with Episcopalianism or the Episcopal Church, and remember, this is simply a case in point of a much larger and more interesting, and to some ways uh, of thinking, defeating phenomenon than simply a narrow historical context, which in literature is a very wide context in the world of English literature. What uh, you find is that in the clerical world of the novels of George Eliot, uh, in which uh, Anglican Church of England rectors uh, and curates figure quite largely, they are always referred to by the appellation Mr., Thus you have in Scenes of Clerical Life the very sad story of the widower Amos Barton, the low church evangelical and very defeated widower whose life turns out so uh, terribly, uh, disappointingly, and through no fault of his own, this poor man is thrust into a, a humbled state by which he cannot even continue in the ministry, which is the one thing he, he actually sincerely has going, and he is uh, known as Mr. Barton. And then you have the very odd uh, story of the kind of uh, rather fussy, uh, we would say sort of geeky clergyman, Mr. Gilfill, who falls in love with a woman, a European continental woman, and uh, who therefore in the small English village uh, where in Leicestershire in the Midlands, where uh, George Eliot uh, sets this uh, tale, he uh, incurs a very sad uh, and uh, not um, uh, tragic but a very defeated situation, Mr. Gilfill's love story. And then you have the very noble and lengthy novella called Janet's Repentance, in which Mr. Tryon, the Reverend Alex Tryon, a young and extremely sincere single Simeonite, that is to say, in the capital E sense of the word, 
in the Church of England, mid-19th century since the word evangelical clergyman comes to a small village where after terrible struggles and conflicts and reactions to his simple and pure biblical message, which is exceedingly well-wired into his inner persona <clears throat> because he is a man who has had a genuine, as opposed to a bogus, a real and anchored and subterranean religious experience that has created the man that you see in the story, Mr. Tryon. And he, although it has a muted, sad ending, it also has a triumphant ending in a very big picture, and that is called Janet's Repentance. Now, um, it, it turns out, and I'm going somewhere with this, I hope you'll bear with me, um, it turns out that uh, George Eliot uh, had another uh, novella or a lengthy short story to include in her uh, mind as she wrote scenes of clerical life, but she withheld it for reasons of timing and publication and simply where she was in the creative process to uh, fight another day and she put a fourth character uh, Mr. Irwine I-R-W-I-N-E Mr. Irvine she placed Mr. Irwine as a um, lead character as opposed to a subordinate character in her first um, uh, really brilliant uh, novel uh, Adam Bede which uh, was uh, published in uh, in 1850 I want to say. And uh, Mr. Irwine uh, is given a tremendous amount of attention, and he is um, a different kind of clergyman. He's blue-blooded. He comes from <clears throat> a fancy... Uh, uh, upper class English family, uh, but one of these families where he he has not inherited um, the old thing about you know the second son went into the military into the navy, the army, the church, or the stage that great line from uh, from h m s pinafore he is not a first son he didn 't inherit, and so out of uh, regard for his mother and his uh, sisters, I believe unmarried sisters, he has chosen to be uh, unmarried and uh, a rector with a glebe. In other words, he has an income as a rector which allows him to support his mother and his sisters in their beautiful parsonage. He's a man of exceedingly high taste and very great intellectual refinement. Um, and all the things that go along naturally with the way he was brought up, but he is a hard-working rector. And uh, he is known of as all clergymen, and I underline the word all clergymen in the Church of England in that era, uh, by the... Um, by uh, Mr. Irwine. And uh, he's a very tolerant man. He is, actually, he's a great man. He's a man of tremendous tenderness. And uh, uh, this is what, uh, although he is not an evangelical and he is not a high a churchman. And uh, this is what um, um, George Eliot says about him on page 75 in the lengthy and, I think, for me, very meaningful chapter entitled The Rector. He remained, you see, at the age of eight and forty, a bachelor, not making any merit of that renunciation, but saying laughingly, if any one alluded to it, that he made it an excuse for many indulgences which a wife would never have allowed him, and uh, uh, he was the only person in the world who did not think his sisters uninteresting and superfluous. But his was one of those large-hearted, sweet-blooded natures that never know a narrow or a grudging thought. Epicurean, if you will, without enthusiasm, no self-scourging sense of duty, but yet, as you have seen, 
of a sufficiently subtle moral fiber to have an unwearying tenderness for obscure and monotonous suffering. It was his large-hearted indulgence, and so forth and so on. And Mr. Irwan, who is played, by the way, in the BBC, um, the English uh, uh, dramatization of Adam Bede, which is very fine, by the wonderful actor Robert Stevens, whom some of you will remember from War and Remembrance in an entirely different role. But uh, um, Epicurean, if you will, that is to say, not a person of enthusiasm like the evangelicals were often regarded, even Mr. Tryon is such a one, or a self-scourging sense of duty, but yet, as you have seen, of a sufficiently subtle moral fiber to have an unwearying tenderness for obscure and monotonous suffering. Well, we could go into the history of uh, Victorian and uh, pre-Victorian and post-Victorian literature right through E.M. Forster, which is a very different kind of uh, approach to these matters than George Eliot's, a much more distanced and uh, neutral approach, or I think I would say almost um, free-thinking approach in the case of E.M. Forster. And you could see and they're always Mr. This and Mr. That, and you, it will come back to you again and again in Dickens, and it'll come back to you in Trollope, heavily in, uh, in Trollope. Mr. Slope, who is the definition of a, of a, of a dreadful um, 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 uh, canting evangelical in Trollope's mind, uh, but then you have uh, 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 Mr. Harding, the saintly, uh, gentle, and humble hero of The Warden, and you have... Um, in various types of clergy in Thackeray, and uh, you'll have them in Jane Austen, and it's always Mr., 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 Mr. This, of course, was pre-Oxford movement, pre-High Church, when all of a sudden there was a crusading group of clergy who felt that the prerogatives of the church were being damaged by a, an ecumenical bishopric in Jerusalem by which the Church of England made official ecumenical um, unity with the Lutheran Church of Germany to position a Protestant bishop in uh, a Jewish, that is Jewish ethnically by blood, Protestant bishop in Jerusalem, and that uh, therein lies a tale. But then the Church of England, the high church people became defensive. And you notice this, all of a sudden their father. Now I want to talk about the current state of affairs or what happened. I hope you've uh, taken it for um, a fact that, uh, because it is a fact, it's not a matter of opinion or discussion, uh, that uh, clergy in the Church of England were always called Mr. And of course, to modern parlance in churches, people always are undone by that because they think, well, that's putting the clergyman on the same, uh, on the same par as everyone else. Well, you bet it was. You bet it was, because the Reformation had uh, changed the whole notion of a celibate, um, remote, almost monastic, and highly um, revered clergy into a family man, a human being, who was attempting with thought. Now remember, this is all before, long before the age of the ordination of women, which is a very fine thing, uh, but I'm talking here of uh, uh, parlance and the, in, the implications of it as it is played out in the 19th century and then does get played out today and what it really means about Christianity and defensiveness. Because when the church, whether it was low church, as in the case of Mr. Barton and uh, Mr. Tryon, or, or the, um, some of the awful ones like Mr. Cadman and uh, Dickens and et cetera, et cetera, or uh, Mr. Chadband, um, or whether it was um, 
it was uh, uh, high church, uh, which uh, we would find in um, a number of uh, just regular old clergy. Mr. Garden, the famous commissary in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, those who in Mr. Sacheverell, the famous high church preacher that uh, Samuel Johnson was supposedly so taken with as a tiny boy. Um, and um, uh, these were not, uh, the word father never comes into it. Uh, and of course, the broad church like Mr. Irvine, who is a tolerant, does has not known a narrow thought in his entire experience of life, and yet has this tremendous tender-heartedness, which comes to fruition almost un bearably with emotion in the way he um, helps Adam Bede in connection with Hetty Sorrel and her sad fate at the end of that great novel. And there are many other clergymen. Thomas Hardy's novels are Tess of the Durbervilles as one. Um, and then uh, they are pilloried by Samuel Butler in The Way of All Flesh and in a number of other um, um, novels. But even in Forster, in, uh, what is it, A Room with a View, uh, his great uh, uh, play, um, about uh, Florence and the uh, implications of something that happens to the heroine on a uh, visit to Florence. So, and with a very free-thinking couple of men, a father and a son, who become heroes, there is an open-minded and marvelous liberal Catholic, that is to say, liberal in uh, spirit and theology, but also high church clergyman, who becomes a kind of a hero, a, a man of tremendous help in the sufferings of life that uh, the families in Forster uh, encounter. So, Miss is universal. Now what happens when the Oxford movement comes in and you see the church has been threatened by in the mind of Newman and Pusey and Keeble and others, uh, and maybe so, that they see the uh, Jerusalem bishopric as a kind of sellout of the distinctive, particular, and unique prerogatives of the Church of England as the church which is not, which is distinct and uniquely distinct from all other Protestant bodies, and yet is not Roman Catholic. It is Catholic in the broad sense, capital C, uh, small c, but it is not Roman, but it is neither Protestant the way they thought the Lutheran Church was, the Lutheran State Church of Prussia and Brandenburg, uh, but nevertheless, that's how they saw it. So immediately there became a, a, a need to have titles uh, very clearly stated that differentiated. This is what always happens. When people become under attack, they differentiate. And so now uh, you have this entire Totally new practice in uh, in the um, in the uh, Church of England, which then spread about ten years uh, following to the American Episcopal Church, in which uh, clergy of a certain stamp of authority and a certain sense of what they were doing, which was the Anglo-Catholic or High Church side, began to refer themselves to refer to themselves as Father and be known as Father, and they immediately embraced by doing so, whether they're married or celibate. Many were celibate, some were married. They immediately embrace to themselves a transference when they call themselves father as opposed to mister. And so um, strong is this emphasis when religion is under a defensive reaction, so strong is this tendency to uh, retreat to distinctives and to authority, even though a much delimited authority. Mr. Irwine has more authority in the parish of Hayslope in Adam Bede and in connection with the squire and the members of parliament and all that happens locally there. Mr. Irwine has more moral authority 
because of who he is, and a church uh, by which he is not even threatened by Methodism. He chides one of his uh, members of his uh, parochial um, council or his vestry. He chides one of them who complains about the woman Methodist preacher, Dinah Morris, who is preaching down on the, gra- the, the, uh, the green, and he chides uh, uh, the rector. is not threatened by her. He said, why put the church into... Let me see. I'll get you the exact uh, reference. When a man comes to Mr. Irwine and complains about the preaching uh, down on the green, Green, uh, uh, preaching on the green, uh, says uh, uh, Mr. Irwine. He says uh, um, this. He says, uh, to be sure, and you must not lower the church in people's eyes by seeming to be frightened about it for a little thing. He says, to be sure, and you must listen to me now, We must not lower the church in people's eyes by seeming to be frightened about it for a little thing. And then he proceeds to actually even quietly praise the local, um, slightly fanatical and angry, but off so sincere uh, Methodist lay preacher who lives in the parish. And Mr. Irwine is finally uh, very uh, deeply charmed by uh, Dinah uh, Morris, the extraordinarily committed and strong and rather Eastern in her detached uh, religion, uh, the young Methodist preacher Dinah Morris who preaches. Uh, And finally, when uh, Dinah uh, agrees uh, after tremendous soul-searching that is extremely credible and non-compartmentalized or or, or, or self-justifying or rationalizing, when she agrees at the end of the novel to marry Adam Bede, uh, she and Adam are married in the church by Mr. Irwine, which is not a holier-than-thou thing that he's somehow stolen the thunder of the Methodists, but their respect for Mr. Irwine and all that he is and what he represents and his deeply uh, internalized understanding of the meekness and the humility and the generosity of spirit and finally the forgiveness which is revealed in a climactic episode with a condemned criminal uh, who's been sentenced to hang. Mr. Irwin's qualities and the qualities of his message uh, are uh, so strong uh, in the um, community that even uh, the uh, Methodist preacher Dinah Morris and Adam B. the carpenter are uh, willingly and delightedly married in the church by Mr. Irwine. Well, Mr. Irwine is not threatened, hence Mr., but his successors may be two back, two further, or three further, might well have called himself uh, father so-and-so. And And, uh, what happened uh, universally is that this became, everybody thought, and what happens with lay people, you can't really say this, but you can say it if you're a clergyman, because it's like you're you're in the profession, you you know how professionals think, whether you like it or not, you do. And lay people, until they get into the kind of guild, it's like academic life, and uh, being a dentist for that matter, or being a physician, you don't sort of know what the insider is thinking until you become one. And when you become one, you find out that you, quote, you, want to be called father because you don't have any other, uh, nobody gives you any other respect walking down the street in the city today. So you want to be called father by your parishioners. And of course, a lot of people love this. They love to, they love to swoop and to walk, just rush into the arms of, uh, of transference and a father figure. And so who wouldn't in many parishes want to call their rector father? And let me tell you how this actually comes down and then I'll finish. Um, I have been fighting an absolutely losing battle and it will never be won. It's lost and it was lost long before I came along for people to call me mister. And uh, they just wouldn't do it. 
They and I would say, well, don't you? I mean, I would quote, you know, Dickens, or I would quote uh, the great the prayer book tradition, which uh, I would quote great authors like I've just been mentioning. I would quote uh, any number of sources which are uh, entirely unanimous in the way that clergy were referred to out of a Protestant consciousness that the clergyman was one. He was the parson, that is the person. He represented the average person. He was not distinct and unique or holier. He was not a monk or an abbot or a priest in some uh, sacramentally uh, ineffaceable um, uh, stamp that had been given by virtue of the laying on of hands. There were people who believed that, but until, uh, until, in fact, in the Episcopal Church, until about 1970, clergy were still almost always referred to as Mr. Now, as I've said before, every great city in the East Coast had a Catholic parish or two, an Anglo-Catholic parish or two, which had carved out a niche since about 18. 18- 70, St. Ignatius in New York, St. Mary the Virgin uh, in New York, and uh, the famous ones in Chicago where there were, there were quite a few, uh, Boston, the Advent, Washington, uh, St. Ag- uh, Paul's K Street, and St. Agnes and the Ascension, going right down to even the South, uh, where there was often a parish that had carved itself out this distinctive niche, and an eclectic group of people who wanted this would come and support it, and the minister was called Father. Uh, he was not Mr. Priest, he was Father Priest. And uh, so... Um, it became, uh, but so uh, delighted were, uh, quote, were the congregations to address their inflated clergy as father, and so delighted or self-congratulatory or pleased was the clergyman to be known as father as opposed to mister, which struck him often as kind of a diminution of all that he had thought he was doing when he went to seminary. Um, the word father took off and became universal. And even I remember I was at a, at a convention or heard of a convention in New York City where Benjamin Minifee, who was the low, low church and, and yet liberal, liberal in the best sense and also low. He was sort of a Mr. Irvine type of character. Um, but Benjamin Minifee uh, uh, always insisted on him being called Mr. And he was a man of, of another era who was, uh, you know, still in the... Uh, in the in the sixties, uh, he was at the rector of Grace Church, which was considered a low church, but it was really would have been historically considered a broad church. But when everybody else went high church, broad churches looked low. So he was now the rector of low Grace Church, and uh, he would get up in front of the the uh, um, the diocesan convention up at Synod House, and sort of a scene from James Gould Cousins, and uh, the bishop, wonderful, uh, the Right Reverend Paul Moore Jr. Paul Moore, whenever Mr. Menifee got up, and if he were recognized by the uh, chair, which Bishop Moore, Bishop Moore would always say, uh, yes, Mr. Menifee, and there'd be a polite chuckle because the Diocese of New York at that time was overwhelmingly Catholic, was overwhelmingly high church, and there were only a scattered group of, of a kind of a tiny little brotherhood of clergy who were still called Mr., and they couldn't really get away with it in public, but Paul Moore was blessing this. He was saying, Mr. Menifee, to please Mr. Menifee, and that was the way Mr. Menifee saw himself, but uh, after that, you couldn't even, I mean, I, I became Father Zoll very rapidly everywhere I went, and uh, there was nothing I could do, even my high church friends who knew a little bit about the history of the church, who knew that I preferred it, sort of thought it was funny to see me slightly humiliated. There was definitely a sense in which I was humiliated when they would force me to put on Catholic vestments if I were, quote, con-celebrating a Eucharist in a high church situation, and I always agreed to. 
I always said yes because I didn't want to rock the boat. But they were really cruel because deep down it was a practical joke. Deep down it was a, you know, this, look at what we've made Mr. Zoll do. Ha, ha, ha. And it was funny, but it wasn't really funny because it was really, a, I guess we would call it today, a lack of respect. All they needed to do was call me Mr. Zoll and then I would have put on the vestments without any problem. There was no concession. There was basically the idea that to be truly religious in the environment in which we live, which is uh, eclectic now instead of universally broadly Christian, we have to insist on our prerogatives and call people uh, people uh, father. And then this became cheapened and popularized with the tremendous uh, uh, influence of the of the desire to be like the Roman Catholics and the ecumenical movement. So instead of being Father Zal, I became then Father Paul because, you know, I hear Father Paul, how you doing? Uh, F- Father Bing, how you doing, Father Bing? Well, I'm doing fine, uh, Father Barry. Uh, you know, um, and you became uh, Father Paul, and that was that was one step beyond. Uh, uh, one step beyond Father Zal was Father Paul, and then bishops, instead of being Bishop Creighton, would become Bishop Bill, you know, or Bishop um, Harold, you know. And uh, this was, and before you know it, who knows what'll be. Um, and uh, the trend, uh, it, it, it first it became a disrespect and a defensiveness, and then it turned into something that w- was a little bit, uh, in my view sort of cheapened and uh, running like lemmings to be something that we never really were. All we were was normal uh, Protestant Christians who embraced the Anglican or Episcopal tradition in certain ways that we valued and held dear, but they were not primary to our Christianity. They were secondary. And we were um, uh, fellow serving human beings who were attempting as uh, uh, the uh, epitaph uh, to um, Phillips Brooks and the statue in Copley Square, Boston. We were attempting to to serve our fellow man, to serve God and man, to use the old language, but that's the way it appears on the statue. He 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 sought to serve, and uh, so Father uh, Paul was another step removed from Father Zal, which was a step removed from where we thought we were, which was Mister Zal and uh, uh, Mister Monroe and Mister So and So, which was really what it was all about. I'll uh, say just one more thing. Um, Years ago in college, at Harvard College, uh, if you were a junior fellow, the tradition was that the absolute creme de la creme of the uh, graduate students, that is those students who uh, were the absolute highest possible level of academic uh, uh, productivity and insight, and uh, material achievement and contribution to their fields, were elected junior fellows of the college or junior fellows, maybe, of the university. But I was so um, very much, uh, I guess, uh, helped in this area long before I became ordained when I was in Lowell House of Harvard College and the the, uh, master of Lowell, uh, Zeph Stewart, may he rest in peace, really took a kind, kind interest in me and became, in fact, my tutor, my my tutor towards the completion of my senior thesis in the classics department, uh, the Department of Special Studies, because it was an interdisciplinary thesis. And uh, it was always odd to me at first, having come from a state university where titles were very important for the first two years of my undergraduate education, where everyone was doctor this and doctor that and professor this and professor that. I was very struck that uh, Zeph Stewart was known as Mr. Stewart. I mean, here he was the master of Lowell House. 
and uh, a, a really uh, a, a, a figure of tremendous substance in the uh, permanent uh, uh, faculty of the classics department of Harvard University. And he was referred to as Mr. Stewart. And I asked him once about it, and he said, well, in the junior fellows were not required to get PhDs. They were not required to finish their PhDs. Their work was considered so good that they were just given license to just do it, like sort of like a MacArthur Fellowship type of thing. They were given license, uh, the, the driving license, to continue to, to do their work, and they got a tenured position and they were they were junior fellows and they never it, it became almost a, you weren't really supposed to to get a, a you didn't you didn't complete your phd and if you did and many actually did complete in the formal sense phds as opposed to the informal sense where ds Eliot, even then they were called mr because they it was uh, considered a little bit a kind of a a kind of artificial attempt to sort of put over uh in a term or a title by calling him Dr. Stewart. Now I knew him as a man in in later middle years and Mr. Stewart was Mr. Stewart and so he remained until he died. Now there were others like him and uh I also found out uh, in some other experiences some other senior academics I knew became known with always referred to themselves as mister remember the united states navy uh you are not uh, you 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 when you're a newly uh, ordained officer you are mister yes mister you know you've you've read billy bud right well um that 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 authority is earned and um open to the world and doesn't have to be insisted upon. Well, what's happened in churches, and I believe you see the same thing in its own form in the Methodists and the Lutherans and all the different denominations, including, well, I'll just say a whole bunch. They have gone so far uh, to the right in their phraseology and nomenclature in almost uh, direct proportion to the insecurity they feel in the larger culture. Um, I was very much uh, clear, it was very clear to me as the rector of Chevy Chase, as I would walk down to, with my wife or on my own at lunchtime or dinner, and I would have, for reasons of duty, my clerical collar on and a suit, uh, that a number of people, especially as the um, in the late years of uh, George Bush uh, and the, uh, the uh, George W. Bush and the reaction that was going on to the religious right, and I was um, I noticed that people there was a tremendous there was much less openness than there was in earlier years when I would wear a collar and often people were friendly and often made a fuss over me and wanted to take me to dinner and um, wouldn't take a tip or gave me the best table. I'm not saying I liked it, but of course I'm human. You know, I did. But I was also aware that in the concluding years of that period of formal ministry that I got a lot of dirty looks. And uh, uh, I, uh, I saw that, and I was coming from a church where everybody was calling me Father Paul or wanting to if they didn't or, 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 uh, and, uh, or calling me something else that, that was almost too far to the cozy. And uh, it, um, this became sort of fighting words. If, if I were to call myself Mr. in the church where I was serving, people would feel like it was almost like a derogation from duty or what kind of a clergyman would unpedestalize his role and call himself Mr. Zoll. This happened years in, in every other place I was ever at until I got my doctorate. And of course, when you become Dr. Zoll, then that, or Dean Zoll, or Bishop Zoll, then the problem obviates itself. Uh, but uh, before that, always Mr. I, one of our, uh, I was always called Father Paul in one 
parish we served somewhere else and and finally our little <laughs> one of our little boys was only about six at the time didn't know what he was saying and he talked to the daughter the little daughter of one of the main people in the church and he said don't you understand my father hates it when you call him father paul i had never been able to have the guts to say that and that became sort of a scandal you know why why does he not want to be called father does he somehow uh, diminish the glory of his leadership of our wonderful church well um it it uh, because it does. To be called Mr. diminishes the human glory of your, quote, wonderful institution in favor of the common ground which we all share, if I may use old-fashioned language, at the foot of the cross. So Mr. Zal is really much better. And whether you like Mr. or Father, and you're fully entitled to call yourself Father because of long tradition, which long tradition, which began around 1860, um, and remember, even Mr. Pusey was not Father Pusey. And Keeble was never called Father except in much later times. He was always called Mr. So, uh, uh, but nevertheless, it has tradition going back to about 1870 or 80. But uh, that's, I am totally with you there. That's fine. Uh, if you're Father, let me be Mr. But now we all have to be Father Paul. And what does that say? It says that the church is irregular. Uh, uh, it's reculier. It's 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 pulling back. The church is is receding. Dover Beach. The tide is uh, going out, and therefore we have to sort of build our our. Uh, we have to do something to to show that we're not we're still there, even though in a in an attenuated and weakened and diminished form. So let's all give ourselves big, huge, fancy titles and uh, a very um, happy reading of. Uh, uh, Victorian novels, uh, especially with great characters like Mr. Irwine, whose uh, humanity and mercy and innate authority of a sanctified, generous character uh, goes hand in hand with an absolute allergy to being known as anything else but Mr. Irvine. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless. <laughs>